Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Claire Harbour, who is a leadership coach, an author, and a podcast host. She's the author of the book, Disrupt Your Career, and the host of the Disrupt Your Career Podcast. And today, we're going to talk to Claire all about careers, a topic that, as any listener knows, I am deeply excited to talk about and super passionate about. Claire is a great thinker and thought leader on this topic. And we're just going to talk a little bit about some of the things that she's seeing in her work, both working with her clients, as well as being in the field of studying career development. So Claire, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I always love starting with a warm-up question. And my warm-up question to you, Claire, is what's a book that has had a profound impact on your life and why? Well, thank you so much for welcoming me so warmly, Al. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, I had a long think about what I wanted to say in terms of books that have had a profound impact on my life. I'm somebody who studied three languages and their literature in university, so I could have pontificated endlessly about some impressive tome. But I decided instead to talk about something that I read when I was a child. So not everyone will have heard of this, but perhaps those who grew up in the States will have. It's a wonderful children's novel called From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Now, why on earth have I chosen this? Because when I was only nine or 10 or so, I was already craving adventure, mystery, and treasure. And the heroine, Claudia, runs away from home in search of adventure and success and lives for a while in a very creative and crafty way at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. All kinds of things happen, but what resonated for me was her independence, her free choice of destiny, adventure, unknown places, treasure and culture, and so much more. I knew I wanted an adventurous life from very early on. Add to that, I guess, my exposure to and predilection for languages, and you get the person that I am now, who fits in everywhere and belongs nowhere, who has lived and worked in 17 countries, four continents, and eight languages, and is still exploring and seeking now. I can totally see how that theme of exploring and seeking has just run rampant throughout your life. You're jogging my memory. I do remember that book, so I love that you Great. brought, I'm that, so glad. brought <laughs> that back. Okay, great. So speaking about uh, exploring and ideating on things, you are an author on a book on career development, you're a coach, you're an advisor, and you host a podcast called Disrupt Your Career. Take me back to the beginning. How did you start studying, researching, and advising on career development? And actually, what actually led to this opportunity in your career to do this kind of work? Thank you. That's a great question. So first of all, I would evoke the metaphor cobbler's children. I made a lot of changes and several mistakes in my own career. I have a low threshold for boredom, and I've been on a lifelong quest for interest and adventure. That and a lack of tolerance for mediocrity, all kinds of things led me to change. Many of them was considered normal, but I did a huge amount of lurching around from one thing I became disenchanted with to another. It wasn't strategic for the most part, and often not particularly well implemented. I don't regret any of my choices, but I did begin to realize and recognize 
that there were multiply more painless ways of making career changes, that my many insubstantial changes could perhaps be positioned as a virtue rather than the vice that some recruiters used to point at. Against this background, Antoine was a friend with whom I had a lot in common. In SEAD, LVMH, and a fascination for how people develop both personally and in organizations. So one day about getting on for 10 years ago now, we got into a conversation about the subject of career transition. And basically we couldn't stop talking. So rather than just fascinate each other in, a, in an echo chamber, we realized that it was a relevant subject to many and started writing articles about less well-documented or more uncommon career transitions, full of uncharted, if you will. And it took off from there, from articles to a book and then more articles still. They're always story-based, which is important. We believe that the magic is in the story rather than the theory. We draw wisdom from the stories and the themes rather than positing and then illustrating. That's the writing part. But most of my work is in coaching leaders and executives who are at massive career crossroads and want to make a huge shift in terms of impact or legacy, maybe authenticity or integrity or something else that's important. And that's just two aspects of the many things I do, but they're the, probably the most important. Well, uh, actually, that's a great jumping off point. You mentioned that those were two aspects of what you do. And I was doing some research and looking at your profile and noticed that you do have a handful of different roles and responsibilities. But I think one of them that comes up through all of them is that you're thinking a lot about the nature of how careers are changing as well as evolving in the workplace, whether it's through the stories you research or whether it's through the clients that you talk to in your coaching and advising. I would love to know from you, can you share what you think is different about careers today than perhaps maybe a decade or two ago? How have how has our thinking around careers evolved or changed or has it? Okay, this is, of course, an important question. And I think it's one whose answer has probably been facilitated by the fact that COVID rode up and into most of our lives because it's made some of the contrasts so very visible. Let's talk about the fact that for sure today, it's much more acceptable and indeed more normal to change jobs quite often. Indeed, current data would suggest that average tenure in a management role is less than two years and actually getting ever closer to only one. There are certainly no more guarantees and little tolerance for boredom or perceived lack of progress in the millennial generation and Gen Z. That idea that perhaps my parents had, I doubt if yours did, that the idea of going to work at IBM, staying there for 40 years and getting your gold watch at the end is well and truly dead and probably has been for about 20 years. And what happens is that now we need to be more agile, all of us more prepared to be creative with how we curate our careers, our skill sets, and our experiences. There are several dimensions that we can think about when considering the old career paradigms and the new. And if you'll indulge me, I'll give you a little list because I think they're terribly important to remember. A traditional career orientation was linear, static, and rigid, whereas the new one is multidirectional, dynamic, and fluid. In terms of boundaries, the old paradigm was simple, one or two organizations or industries. The new one is quite simply multiple organizations, multiple sectors, multiple occupations or functions. Traditionally, we gained job security for loyalty or a full-time long-term contract for a degree. Now we trade off employability for performance, part-time, flexi-time, work from home, freelancing, projects, gigs. And the value of a degree in all of this is much more questionable. Salaries and benefits are being transformed into contracts and fees. Mobility is much higher now than before. 
The traditional work environment was bureaucratic and in the office. Now we're looking at a shared vision and mission, along with virtual space and remote working. The people focus has shifted dramatically. Initially, all attention was on the boss and co-workers. Now we must also pay attention to clients and customers, vendors, and the wider team members and stakeholders. Our identities were forged in the past by our employers, our positions or occupations. Whereas more recently, identity is shaped independent of employer and with more focus on community and other affiliations. And finally, responsibility for our career management used to be perceived as something that HR takes care of. Whereas now the ball is firmly in the court of each individual to take care of progress, network, mentors, and so on to create the career she or he wants. So all of this means that we have a much bigger stake to play with and thus more to gain if we manage it well and a great deal more to lose if we don't. I think the before and after or the from to or however you want to line it up is uh, across a number of different dimensions. Paints a really great visual picture, at least for me, just in terms of thinking about how things have evolved and changed. And something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is just about how all of the things that you mentioned, I think there's elements, there's a lot of truth of that out there in the market, but, or, and I should say, we are still collectively have a lot of opportunity to grow into some of those new dimensions that you were just writing about or talking about, both as individuals, Mm -hmm. as well as organizations. I would be curious to know from your perspective, why haven't we maybe evolved as quickly as you had mentioned? Because if even take, for example, some of the things that you mentioned there. So we talk about things like internal mobility, right? And this is not a new topic per se. Trying to retain employees is something that we've thought about for a very long time or trying to move them internally. But still, there's some really good research out from Gloat that says, I think probably about 65% of people that they polled in a study said that it was going to be easier for them to find another job outside of their company than it would be for them to find a job within their company. And so across a number of different dimensions, I'd be just curious to hear your perspective, at least on the organizational side of, even if we know some of these things are apparent and true or around what has held us up from being able to evolve? I think the simplest answer to that question, which is so important, is that, you know, that old joke about the only person that actually likes change is the baby with the full diaper. And that it's far easier to talk about change and write about it and put it in the corporate values or some kind of internal communication document or even an external one in which some great boast is posited, we're really inclusive, whatever it might be. Going from the words to the action is painful, difficult, and involves convincing every single member of an organization, typically one person at a time. So it is slower than leaders might like. I think there's a very real possibility that some leaders might not even like it, but they feel obliged to say that they're going in that direction. And so... Things are just slower than we would like or imagine them to be, I guess, is the slightly disappointing but realistic answer, I believe. I don't think there are any obvious ideological barriers beyond resistance to change that are coming into play here. It's just that. Think of women's liberation, think of the 1960s and all the progress that was supposedly made and then compare what was going on for women then to what's going on now. Did we really make 60 years worth of progress. Well, I mean, 60 years have passed, but what really changed? Uh, It's another good example of how ideologically things have moved, but the reality is that things are much slower. 
Sure. I think that's spot on. And I would agree. Change can sometimes be one of those things that is is fine when we choose it. But when it's put in front of us, it sometimes is a little bit more difficult. And certainly for some of these organizations that are massive, being able to roll out these types of changes and to really think and work in new ways, it can really take some time to evolve. So one thing I did notice in terms of the book and the podcast you have, the title has the phrase disrupt your career in it. Can you share about why did you choose this or is there a certain meaning behind this? And also, how does this come alive in the work that you do? So I think this leads really very smoothly on from what we've just been talking about. In other words, we can wait for organizations to make the changes we think they should, or we can get on and do a bit of disrupting ourselves. So our overall device is disrupt or be disrupted. In other words, make the changes you want to make, however radical yourself in your career and be agile, fluid and open rather than ending up being made redundant or just being mindlessly unhappy. So I guess our work focuses on the types of transitions that were not so common or uncharted, whether something like leaving consulting with the aim of becoming an executive leader or going into management from the performing arts and vice versa. And we look for the wisdom that comes from the stories we uncover. So, for example, what we can all learn from the change made by John, who was an Olympic gold medalist, who then struggled with his professional identity when he went into nonprofit work, or from the story of Richard, who escaped his uneventful childhood in New Zealand in pursuit of adventure in the oil and gas industry. We also argue very hard that organizations should be more open to recruiting big-scale career changes and valuing the soft skills that come from such changes rather than being so focused on recruiting clones of the previous person with a shopping list of experience and hard skill. So one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, because this is relevant to my own audience, is that I know you work quite a bit with MBA students or MBA graduates, and Absolutely. I would love to get your perspective from some of this work that you do, and would love to know, what are the common types of questions or challenges that students and graduates come to you with? What are the things that are on their mind with respect to their careers? So. The biggest questions that seem to come up are around how to think out of the box. This doesn't necessarily mean that everyone I meet in an MBA situation is pursuing a snowflake career, but it certainly tends to end up being much more about how not to follow the crowd for the wrong reasons. A reality is that somewhere between 10 and 20% of my coaching clients are made up of MBAs who are three or five years out from school who realized that the big ticket career that they went for at McKinsey or Amazon was actually the wrong choice. There's way too much importance placed on going for big brands, and they're very seductive. Being more self-aware and more willing to hold out for one's true values will be of value. But this is not always inherently the case, nor particularly encouraged in the schools. What's more, I think it's worth mentioning that schools get a better reputation and ranking if all their graduates are placed at the end of the MBA course. So it's in their interests to do that in an industrialized way. For example, inv inviting Google or Bain on campus and lining up hundreds of well-groomed candidates for them is likely to create a great outcome for the statistics, but not necessarily in the medium term for the individuals involved. It's not necessarily just because you got an offer at Bain that you should take it. Will you actually love the pressure? Or will you relish the politics involved in getting on the best projects? So much of what is required for true success in a big brand role like that is not actually fully about the heart of the role, but it is crucial to survival. And if you don't love that more inconvenient aspect, 
you may well not survive, or at the very best, you won't thrive. So to summarize, it's always about developing more self-awareness and honesty. And the reality is that an MBA year is not spacious enough for all that much self-reflection for most people. Just getting the coursework done and having some interaction with others is a tall enough order. But without that deep reflection, poor choices may well be made over career. The great news is, of course, that this can be fixed. And the regularity of career change that is acceptable these days makes that simple. Simple, but perhaps not easy. And that's why we end up doing so much work with this age and stage segment. I think you, you brought up a couple of good points there. That, uh, I think the first being that for a lot of people, going to business school and getting an MBA is one of the first times where there is a transformational moment where you do get a chance to self-reflect and develop greater self-awareness. And that in and of itself, I think, can be a really powerful thing. And to your point, the outputs of that or what you gain from that may be the thing that makes sense for you in that moment. But there may be some further work and further development that probably needs to happen or not necessarily needs to happen, but evolves over time that doesn't fit within the 18 to 24 months that you are in that program. And in addition to that, which I think is something that I always impart to MBA students who graduate is I, one of the things I tell them is that, look, for 99.5% of you, this next job and is not going to be the last one that you have, particularly knowing that most MBA students graduate between the ages of 27 to 34. Unless you really hit it big or decide to, uh, to <laughs> start to retire early, you'll be working for a while. Yeah. And so yeah. part of why I'm doing, I've really done that is because for so many of them, that first job out of business school and arguably that first career is not going to be their last one. And whatever they learn in business school about themselves, certainly about the knowledge or whatever skills they gain is going to be valuable for that first job or career. But in theory, it's also going to be valuable as they continue to evolve and grow over time. And I just as a follow-up to the point you made about that, knowing that these students, many of them will change jobs, change careers after they graduate, any thoughts or any advice on things or places they can invest time in while they're in school that might prepare them well for navigating their future career or future careers, knowing that there, there could be careers, plural. Absolutely. So this is a crucial point. We have a framework for success called career agility. And actually, we have an online course called How to Be a Career Acrobat. We'd argue that it's not only during business school, but both before and after that we should all be focusing on our agility, just like we should on our physical agility. The framework is based on the six C's. And I'm going to take you through them one by one. The first C is commitment. Commitment implies that you're dedicated to the process of managing your career and are willing to take action to create change. The first step is to set aside time to probe your options and examine them with care and focus. By anticipating the moves you could make, you're more likely to make better choices. The second C is control. Control is the extent to which you're in charge of your own career decisions. You can build a more exciting career by being conscientious about it, as opposed to relying on chance. Be disciplined and deliberate when choosing your goals, and then create the conditions to achieve them. No excuses entertained. Thirdly, we have curiosity, probably my favorite of them all. Curiosity means that you enjoy exploring the world of work and learning about roles and their requirements. As your possibilities are bounded by what you know, then better information naturally expands your opportunities. Seek new experiences as a way to discover careers that fit your personality and talents. Fourth, we have change agility. Change agility is your natural level of comfort in new or unsettling situations. 
Some people are more tolerant of uncertainty and they can handle it well. Valuing new perspectives and viewing problems as opportunities will increase your creativity, resourcefulness, and self-confidence, setting the stage for career change. Next, we have everybody's favorite, connections. Connections represents your network and the efforts you make to meet new people. To succeed at networking, and by the way, I think the word networking should be banned from everybody's vocabulary, just given the fear that it tends to inspire. But to succeed at networking, you must perceive all conversations as learning opportunities, not only those conversations relating to careers. You must start with a desire to initiate relationships and invest in them over time. And don't limit your circle. Reach far and wide. Talk to the old lady next to you on the bus or the person serving you food or coffee. It's always going to bring some kind of richness to your life. The final C is confidence. Confidence is the faith that you have in your ability to make and carry out wise career decisions. Switching careers usually involves some challenges. Do you trust that you will overcome obstacles that might appear in your path? The key is to stay optimistic and realize that resilience can be built. Now, these six C's contain a broad range of knowledge, values, skills, and abilities. While some of these elements may be innate, others, such as change agility or connections, can be improved. So whether you're contemplating a career change in the short term or not, everybody would do well to boost your agility and become more of an acrobat. But acrobats need to train every single day. The metaphor and visual of an acrobat is very is resonating very much with me just in terms of thinking about careers. And so I, the, I think the six C's are super helpful and interesting and really a good framework for thinking about how to go about some of these changes. And I know we've talked a little bit now just about individuals and careers, but I want to shift the focus for a little bit because I know you also think a lot about careers within the context of organizations. And one topic that I know I care a lot about, and I think you do as well, is really around uh, the role that leaders as well as organizations play in terms of recruiting the right talent and diverse talent so that people can build meaningful careers and contribute in a meaningful way. Any thoughts on what can we all do as leaders to be more aware of the value of people who might be making a career change as we bring them into the organization or hire for roles where we're looking for, quote unquote, specific expertise, things like that? Absolutely. Well, the cynic in me would say this is a pet peeve. The optimist would say, wow, there's so much opportunity here. But let's start with some chilling facts from the research that we did for our book. Career development is one of the most overlooked and underserved areas of human capital management. Organizations that do provide career development are six times more likely to engage their employees and four times less likely to lose workers. 82% of employees say they would be more engaged with the work that they do if career discussions were more regular. And only 16% of those show that they have ongoing conversations with their managers about their careers. If you're not spooked so far, let's talk about what can be done about this. The first thing is quite simply to expand your view of the talent pool. Be open to new untapped sources of talent, value diversity of experience, and flex your search criteria. The great resignation is pushing this as an idea, but we're not there yet. Next is understanding and valuing career changes' core capabilities. Try hiring for innate talents and be willing to invest in training. You may find a candidate with the right attitude, experience, and problem-solving skills, but who lacks a particular certification or skill set. Once you define the skills and talents required for a position, prioritize the characteristics most important to get the job done and areas that can be successfully achieved through training. Another thing is quite simply to proactively tap into neglected sources of talent 
and infuse your employer value proposition with messages that appeal to them. Think about boomerangs, veterans, returners, serial career changers, and offer these minorities what they want and need. Think about the fact that traditionally recruiters have been putting bottoms on seats and try to ensure that your recruiters are taking more of a career coach stance and facilitating true advice and counsel as opposed to just selling a job and putting that proverbial bomb on a seat. Creating a flexible work environment is really important to accommodate employees' life changes. Family leave, career leave, carer leave, dual careers, all of these kinds of things need much more attention. And when energy is placed in that direction, little miracles can be created along the way. There's opportunity to provide disruptive experiences internally and build more mobility without losing people because they're in quest of adventure or something different. Look at GSK or Microsoft and the sorts of exceptional journeys they're offering some of their people to get consulting on nonprofit stuff or volunteering skills, not just for a day, but for a year. These sorts of stretches will create new angles in the individuals and make them as valuable, in fact, more valuable without losing them. And finally, obviously, enable frequent high-quality career conversations that go well beyond the bounds of annual reviews. In fact, as far as possible, ban the annual review and just keep talking. There, there were a lot of really interesting ideas and points you made there. I think the last one in particular really was grabbed a hold of me in the sense that is certainly, I think, one of the things that if you make that a consistent practice as a manager or leader, I do think that is going to be a huge unlock in A, being able to show your people and employees that this is something that's important to both you as a leader as well as the organization. But B, that will also be an opportunity for and give the space to the employee to understand that it's also on them to bring their own thoughts and their ideas to the conversation as well. But I think it helps when the manager really makes it known and makes it aware and consistently prioritizes it, and it gives employees uh, the space to talk about it and, and to bring it up. I would love it if every employee would just bring it up on their own, but and there always will be some that do. But I think something powerful that a people leader and a manager can do really is around taking ownership to at least create the space and make it a priority that this is something that is going to be talked about on a regular, consistent basis. And then the other thing I would just add to that is that I talk to managers all the time. And one of the things that sometimes really they struggle with is not knowing where to start, particularly around careers and career conversations. And so one of the things I am seeing more of, and I hope would just be made part of just any manager training really is the training around here is how to have a really thoughtful and intentional career conversation with your employees. And just from anecdotal research, one of my hypotheses under why this is so hard is that a lot of times that manager who's stepping into that managerial role also hasn't had good career conversations themselves. Absolutely. No role modeling has happened previously. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So one, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and I was thinking about this recently because I have a, I have a one-year-old niece and we were, uh, I was talking with my sister just about for kind of projecting, oh, what do you think mm -hmm. she wants to be when she grows up? And it started getting us talking just about, in general, just about the role that parents and parent-like figures have in terms of shaping and helping their children towards meaningful and happy careers and lives. And I know for myself, I can speak from my own personal experience. My, my parents absolutely had a huge influence and continue to have a huge influence in terms of how I view careers and how I found my own kind of steps in my own careers. And 
I would love to hear from you. What thoughts do you have about what parents can do to help children towards exploration of careers, finding careers that do allow them to live happy and meaningful lives? Thank you. It's such a great question. And I've raised four children, so I've had to think about it quite a lot. And they have challenged every one of my assumptions about what success and good careers look like. So I'm very, very grateful to them. Grace, Georgia, Billy, Kitty, thank you. Let's talk about some generalities that are so important in this area. First of all, I would say parents need to make sure that their own lives and careers are happy so that they're modeling the right behaviors to the children. No, no quantity of pious, trite messages about being happy will float at all with the children if they observe the parents to be not aligned with their values and their, and their joys. Next, I think talking about choice and keeping children open and exposed to different ways of creating career and happiness at whatever stage of their lives. There's also a real need to associate whatever work is being talked about or done with happiness and not with duty nor, tra nor tradition. And those are things that often come through and aren't generally very helpful. Being genuinely curious about what each child likes, enjoys, and is good at and encouraging them to continue to be curious in those same sorts of direction is going to be very valuable. Ensure that they meet all your own diverse friends and connections and are constantly shown that anything is possible. If you happen to have a friend who's an astronaut from NASA, make sure that your little girl meets him or her. Just really keep all those options and openings and different takes on life as visible as possible. And if you don't have a bunch of friends living around the corner, then make sure that you Make different kinds of friends online. Look at movies and books about children and adults doing extraordinary things with their lives and being curious and open. And finally, I would say avoid cultural or family cliches about what success looks like. The doctor, lawyer, engineer syndrome is still alarmingly alive and well in far too many places. So I want to tell just a quick story before we, we wrap here. When I was growing up, one of the things that uh, my parents did, which I think you just explained really well, is that they introduced me to a lot of their colleagues and professional friends, who in many cases also were personal friends. And one area in particular where this came to life was my dad, for 20 years or so, ran a conference for his industry. And so mm -hmm. I would, for about 18 of those years, went to that conference starting when I was a probably about 12 years old, all the way to it being into my professional career. And one of the things at that conference was that there were always keynote speakers and authors and thought leaders and the like. And I got to meet over the years some of the top thought leaders that are out there in the world. And it's not really a shock to me how that I ended up now being a keynote speaker and speaking at conferences and events and other types of things. But I think it had a lot to do with the fact of the modeling that you just mentioned. And so I, all the things that you suggested, I think are really powerful, but that one in particular is one that definitely came true and made an impact and influence on me. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's absolutely lovely. Well, Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved chatting with you about your journey to studying careers and the work you do in career development and all of your contributions. If our listeners want to learn more about you, listen to your podcast or check out your book, where can they go or where should they find you? A brief list here, which I assume you'll also publish somewhere in the notes. But my personal website is easy. It's claireharbour.com and harbour is spelt the English way with an O and a U in the second syllable. The book and article website is www.disrupt-your-career.com. 
And if you want to find that course that will help you to build your career agility, then you can go and test or buy that at www.careeracrobatsallinoneword.com. And the podcast is called Disrupt Your Career, and you can find it in most of the usual places. So I really hope that we'll see some new and energetic people popping up in our different places as a result of this. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.